Hello, good day, good evening, everybody. I hope you are all doing very well, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show, the first episode of the year 2024. I hope you are all doing very well. Uh, it's been a while since we did these episodes, so yeah, we are back on the track now, and we're going to do a lot more these years, uh, this year. Yeah, so looking forward to that. So uh, I hope you're all doing very well, and let me see who all is there on the live stream. Let me see lots of comments. Let's see who all is there. uh i can see shashank neo neo sg vivek singh green ray shivam tiwari maximus decimus gautam pendalia shivam singh think tank kritarth soni midnight stalker uh rubin deren muthuswami akshay neo jasneet singh suresh neo abhishek paleria sam bed gautam varun arpita pavan adi ander nagri gamer vladimir zelensky <laughs> manavendra komal bp vinit krishna vivekananda reddy geopolitical dubey man sanjay kumar singh vijesh mukund jack tejas nishant vishnu pritraj <laughs> anand neo arpita animistrix threat ripper rajat duhan rajat singh rawat rituraj krishna sushant tanmay ravi sarthak gk amisha shashank rahul tathagat and so many so many other people trupti patel jenil joel jos nishant uh, amit dr amit arbind thakur pavan kumar singh bais pritraj again atish and and so many other people varsh subramaniam jayashankar anish prashant doddi and everybody else i i can see some more pooja vs captain kepler sid dave and so on so i will not be able to greet you all individually because otherwise it will take all night but thank you so much for being on the live stream it's great to be back on the live stream so in this live stream i'm going to uh i'm going to take questions as always i'm going to take questions from the live chat mostly but i have also taken some questions that have uh, people have asked in the comments so a few of those must but mostly from the live stream so that's what we will do and uh, you can start with the questions or maybe i can take one uh, take a question from um 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 that i had taken uh, from the comments so let's do that and that brings us to the announcement so here's the question uh, lots of people i get this question all the time uh, is there any course to study geopolitics in india how to how can we study geopolitics are there some good books to guide us or any method to observing what's actually happening behind the scenes how to analyze international relationships without any ideological influence of other people how to get a proper knowledge of geopolitics can we just uh, uh yeah no proper answer no can we just re- read a bunch of newspapers so you cannot do that and there are no textbooks on geopolitics and there is no such thing so that's why i have gone ahead and created a course on geopolitics yes it is time to announce the course and it's going to be the best course of its kind on geopolitics it's called geopolitics from first principles so let me show you what the course looks like this is a brief announcement okay so uh, it's a course that will essentially help you understand how geopolitics really works from a professional perspective not from the perspective of opinions but how to actually calculate national power and how to uh, compare 
the difference differences between the national powers of various nations and how to understand how the world really works so it's all about numbers it's all about hard facts and figures no opinions no wishy washy all that stuff so this is an overview of the course okay it's going to be about uh, what is geopolitics the international order the state power energy the importance of power and energy the westphalian system the system that we live in currently the types of states forms of government defining characteristics of nation states building blocks of power i think this is this is something that will interest all of you comprehensive national power how to calculate any nation's comprehensive national power based on facts and figures not opinions okay uh, not opinions and sentiments but actual hard figures then case studies usa versus russia usa china china russia india china india china pakistan and so on lots of case studies what is the balance of power what is the national interest this is what leads to conflicts between nations once again the different kinds of power then what are the types of conflicts what are the root causes of conflicts the thucydides trap the objectives of conflict triggers for war and so on and so forth okay Co conflict and war is what actually drives geopolitics and the struggle for power so i'm going to explain all of that then obviously cooperation as well what is hegemony and what causes the rise and decline of powers and nations so that's a brief overview of the course uh, the link is going to be in the description i'll also put the link in the comments so that uh, you all can find it let me do that let me put the link in the comments so the, this course is going to go live on the 1st of february right now it's open for pre orders the link is now in the live chat and you can all access it from there here it is this is the link and uh, this is something that uh, this is a course that uh, you can sorry one second here it is so this is something you can pre order right now if you pre order now before the 1st of february you will get a reasonably good discount so go for it uh, this uh, can i pin this let me see if i can pin this uh not sure if i can pin this particular comment but uh, here it is it's it's there and you can you can see it over here so whenever you 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 can if you want to if you want to go through this it's obviously only for people who are serious about understanding geopolitics it's not for people who don't have a serious interest in this all right so that's that is it that's the announcement it's going to go live on the 1st of february uh, whoever buys this will have lifetime access to the course and i'm going to come live on the 1st of february and give an overview and essentially take you through the entire course and the course is a pre-recorded course which you can study at your own leisure and place and pace so there you have it uh, finally my course is about to release about to launch on the 1st of february so i hope that those of you who are actually interested in in how geopolitics really works how to actually calculate the national power of of various nations how to understand the world order the pecking order of world of the various nations in the world how to specifically point out each nation's strengths and weaknesses vis-a-vis -vis another nation or the strength and strengths and weaknesses of a coalition against another coalition that is all this course will allow you to do it's going to be something that will put you in the top 5% of geopolitical analysts actually if you study it properly so there you have it check it out and i look forward to seeing you there on the 1st of february those of you who actually wish to purchase this all right so uh, with that done let's go and uh, so someone's asking about promo code so right now if you purchase before the 1st of february you will get an automatic discount so no need for a promo code it's going to be automatically applied to whoever 
purchases the course right now. So go for it if you're interested. And uh, yeah, the promo code is already applied until the 1st of February. Once it's the 1st of February, it's going to be a different price. So right now, those of you who want it can get it for a discount. All right. All right. Let's go and take some questions now. Uh, McLevin says, uh, global impact of Ram Mandir. Uh, look, uh, the global impact of Ram Mandir is, is, is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to give uh, a significant impetus to what we call Hinduism or Hindu Dharma, right? It's going to bring all, all the people together. People from Mauritius are celebrating. People from Fiji are celebrating. People in the US and various other parts of the world are all celebrating. The fact that we have uh, reconstructed this, this temple after uh, a gap of nearly five centuries. So it brings the entire global uh, Hindu community together. And it's going to give a significant impetus and uh, it's going to give a significant incentive for people to visit India. And they will once again start seeing India as the spiritual homeland. They may live wherever in the world. We have millions of Indians who live all around the world. You go anywhere in the world, you will find Indians. Okay. You go to Niagara Falls, you will feel like you're in India and Niagara Falls is in India and there are a few foreigners over there. That's how it feels. Indians are everywhere. So what it, it's going to do is it's going to give them an incentive to return to India. It's going to, you know, once again, reposition India as the spiritual homeland, the cultural homeland and heartland of all Indian origin people, especially Hind Dharmic people, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, uh, Jains, etc. Okay. So uh, it's, it's uh, going to turn Ayodhya, this small, sleepy, until now, small, sleepy town of Ayodhya into a global uh, a city with a global stature. And not just from the point of view of tourism, but from the point of view of culture and, and uh, spirituality. So, you know, we have so many holy cities in India. One of the holiest, obviously, is Varanasi, Banaras. Now, Ayodhya is going to reclaim. It's, it's one of its... Uh, possibly one of the preeminent positions in that and that and and secondly so, so that's the cultural and spiritual thing it's going to bring the indian origin people together it's going to give them this uh, new focal point homeland heartland spiritual place cultural place religious place right but it's also uh, the world has taken note of what's happened okay and there's been a various there's been various kinds of reactions lots of these reactions have been negative especially from the English-speaking media, English-speaking press, the global press. Their, uh, their reactions typically are, if you read, if you read The Guardian or The New York Times or The New York Post or Washington Post or whatever, all these, BBC, CNN, all, the, all these things, even French publications, etc., whichever, whichever publications come under the umbrella of, of the so-called West, okay? Typically, you will find that uh, the, the sentiment is negative towards us. They are saying that India is descending into Hindu supremacism and fascism and, you know, the standard tropes that they, that they employ to talk about India. So there's that. But they, they have taken note of what's happened and their reaction has been negative. The reaction mainly overall has been negative because they don't want India to rise as a civilizational power. They would like India to remain a nation state, stay in your lane. So... I just showed you the geopolitical course that I've created, right? Okay. And in that, there is something called types of state. Let me put that back on since this is, it's relevant. Okay. So uh, where are we? Let me, let, <laughs> uh, the types of state, right? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? I'll show you. So here we have types of states. We have nation states. We have kingdoms. We have empires, civilizations, client states, and vassal states. My favorite word, right? Vassal states. Protectorates, occupied states, 
and failed states and there are actually lots more kinds of states but these are one could say the main primary uh, classification the, the primary classification of the types of states so under the westphalian system that we live in the so called rules based world order uh, international order every political entity sovereign political entity is regarded as a nation state okay you will find that there are various nations in the west like the uk that don't have a constitution and are actually monarchies they have a king or a queen okay whether it is the uk whether it is spain whether it is uh, the netherlands whether it is lots i can give you lots of other examples they all have kings and queens they all have royal families and yet they want us to be a different kind of entity they want us to be a nation state merely um, a parliamentary democracy or any kind of democracy but no monarchy even though they have reserved and preserved their their traditional systems okay so so these are the different kinds of states in the current global order every every nation is regarded as a nation state only but there are certain nations that have a deep and rich history and civilization a few such nations exist one is india one is china even russia could be considered one so these are not merely nation states these are civilization states a civilization is way greater and much broader than a nation a mere nation state it can be regarded as an artificial construct look at the failed state called pakistan it's it's almost a failed state okay so that's an artificial nation pakistan has been artificially created by a foreign power to serve a certain geopolitical role another artificial nation one could say is the united states it's it's a nation that was created out of settler colonization and canada and all these and so many such nations so they want a nation like india to remain merely a nation state and not try to become too big for it it's boats okay don't decolonize don't reclaim your civilizational status right and when a thing like the ram mandir happens it's a step in towards reclaiming india's civilizational status okay today why don't we look at india as a civilization because our laws are foreign in nature our constitution is foreign in nature the language we use to communicate with each other is a foreign language the education system the the, the government system the judiciary the bureaucracy the police force the armed forces everything the structure the the entire structure and base and the foundation is foreign in nature and when you start chipping away at this at these things and you bring back the indigenous uh, element in all of this that's when you slowly start going towards the status of a civilization and one of the things we don't uh, which doesn't exist is that we don't have these great temples which we had 1000 years ago all across the length and the breadth of the country so now that one such temple has been rebuilt and certain other process uh, processes are in motion that's why there is the world has taken note and that's why there's been this uh, strongly negative reaction because they don't want this to happen they want india to stay a mere lowly nation state they don't want india to become a civilization state because they know that india is the oldest civilization india is way greater culturally and civilizationally than anything that exists in the west the only comparable nation today is china but china we know it's about 3000 years old we are god knows how many thousands of years old at least 10000 india from the archaeological perspective from hard archaeological evidence we are at least 10000 years old china is 3 3 1/2000 years old and china doesn't have any problem in, in acknowledging the fact that india is older so there are two major civilizational states today india is on the way to becoming a civilization state china it is also somewhere on the way 
to becoming a civilization state. And Russia, one could say, it's it's more of an empire than a civilization. But yeah, one could say that it's got a broadly Slavic uh, perspective and it has a big, big Slavic diaspora and so on. So these are the threats to, to the Western-led world order. And so that's why their reaction has been negative. You know what's funny? This fellow, this individual, this marauder, Babar, Babar, right? He was from, he was not Indian. We know that, right? I hope we all know that. Babar was not Indian. He was Uzbek. I mean, Uzbekistan as a nation did not exist then, but he was born in the city of Andijan in the Fergana Valley in Uzbekistan. Do you know, do you want to see where it is? Where's the map? Where's the map? Okay, one of the most important things in geopolitics is the map. So let me bring out the map and let's see where it is. It's not really far from India, by the way. Central Asia is actually our neighborhood, but we have kind of lost touch completely with it. So here we are, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. That is the Indian subcontinent, all right. And then we have Uzbekistan. As you can see, it's not really far away. It's a stone's throw away from the, from a you know big perspective, big picture perspective. And let's find the city of Andijan. Where is Andijan? All right, here we have Andijan. So you can see that this got this, they have this convoluted border, and this here city Andijan is where Babar was born. All right, so he was born there. And he came to India as an invader, as a marauder, and as somebody who had no respect for Indian culture and civilization. And he tried his best to tear our civilization down. Obviously, he failed. But one of the heinous things he did was, was that he destroyed the great ancient temple that uh, stood at the, which marked the location of the birthplace of Sri Ram. He destroyed that and he built that, that structure on top of it, right? So now the structure was brought down in 1992. And this year, 22nd of January, we have rebuilt and reconsecrated reconsec the Pran Pratishta of the Ram Mandir. So we have rebuilt our civilizational, um, you know, uh, temple. My question is this. Has there been a single protest from Uzbekistan? Has there been a single protest from Uzbekistan? Has any Uzbek person raised any concern about this or any 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 criticism about this? Has any Uzbek newspaper, publication, website, etc. criticized what's happened? Not one. Not one. They have no problem with India bringing justice back to its land. So why does the West have a problem? Why can't they go and mind their own business? You know, there is something called sovereignty. There is something called non-interference. Once again, let me share my course because it's, it's relevant to what I'm saying over here. Once again. So we have something called the international order and the Westphalian system. So the, the, the foundational pillars of the Westphalian system are the nation-state system, sovereignty, Territorial integrity, non-intervention. Non-intervention means you will not interfere in the internal affairs of sovereign nations. I will mind my business and do whatever I need to do in my country. And I will stay out of your internal matters. And you will respect me and you will do the same. You will do whatever you want within your country. You will govern as you wish. Pass any laws, any policies that you want, and you will stay out of my business in my nation. That that is the foundational underpinning, foundational pillar of the rules-based world order. And these Western nations, hmm, they they think that they they can determine the rules as they go, as they go along. Today this is the rule. Tomorrow that's the rule. 
certain things apply to me and they don't apply to you certain things apply to you but they don't apply to me this is the hypocrisy that people are sick, are sick and tired of and that's why the west is declining because nobody re respects the west anymore so that's the deal okay long answer but but that's the point that's what it is all right let's move on to the next question i'm sure we have other questions lots of other questions uh <laughs> abhijit reddy says how did how slash why did myanmar burma brahmadesh a dharmic country behave so adharmically with respect to manipur you have no idea what's going on in Myanmar. Okay. The problem is that we have absolutely no understanding of what's happening across the border right now. And we don't have our textbooks don't teach us, our schools, our textbooks, our esteemed professors and teachers, they teach us nothing about our neighboring countries. So we have no idea what's happening there. And we get the feeling that they are all our enemies or they are doing terrible things to us. You have to understand. That Myanmar, Burma itself, the northern part and other parts of Burma themselves are under foreign occupation. So Manipur is facing a terrible problem. Half of Manipur is under foreign occupation. Okay, the occupiers are the so-called cookies. And they have infiltrated from across the border from Myanmar, from Myanmar's territory. If you look at satellite images of the past five, six years, you will see that in the southern part of Manipur, in the southern half of Manipur, thousands of new villages have cropped up in satellite images in over the past five, six years. All infiltrators from across the border. Okay? Because the border is open. That was the agreement between India and Myanmar. Now, why are the Burmese doing this is the question. My, my, my counter question to you is, are these infiltrators really Burmese? Or are they merely people who are coming from Burmese territory? Let's look at the map. Of course, we should look at the map. All right. Where is the map? This is the larger question I, we, we, have to, we have to ask. One second. Let me bring the map in. Here we are. All right. So, as we know, Myanmar, Burma, is this large nation, reasonably large nation, to our east. And significant portions of the north of this country are occupied or inhabited by people who have nothing to do, do with Burmese culture. So let's take the cookies as an example. Well, this term cookie is, is a neologism. It's an artificial term that has been created in the past 100-150 years. Okay, these people, their original tribal name was Thado or something. Okay, and these individuals, these people, they don't speak the Burmese language. They don't practice Burmese customs or traditions. They don't respect Burmese customs or traditions. Religiously, they are not Buddhist or Hindu. And what are their origins? These people, they in the past 300-400 years, less than 500 years, they came into Burma from Western China, Southwestern China, which is the, the Yunnan region of China. Okay? So these people who are invading Manipur right now are not Burmese. They are fighting the government of Burma. They are fighting the government of Bangladesh and they are fighting the government of India. They are fighting three wars in three countries and they want their own nation. 
a nation in Christ. All right. So the Burmese people themselves are under siege from these foreign organizations. You have uh, the, the Arakan issue, the Rakhine state issue. You have the Shan state, the Karen state, all kinds of ethnic trouble in Burma. They're all fighting the Burmese government. Okay, and then there are lots of bigger powers involved in this. The two big powers involved in this, in this are the US and China. Okay, the Chinese are involved because China is right next door. Okay, as you can see, if you, if you, if you draw a straight line from the border of Manipur and Myanmar and just go straight eastwards, it's about China, the Chinese territory is just about 300 kilometers away. Just about 300 kilometers away. So we have all this entire convergence of issues, problems over here. And that is the issue. So the solution to the problem in Manipur, first of all, we have to understand the Manipur problem did not occur in the last five years or 10 years. It, it, it the, the roots of the problem that Manipur faces today go back to the end of the 18th century when the Manipuri king, Bhagya Chandra, did a complete mess of the succession. He was a great king, okay? He was a great king. He was he was great. He was very big on culture. The great efflorescence of Manipuri culture that happened is all because of King Bhagyachandra. Bhagyachandra. Manipuri dance, not Sankirtan, all kinds of things. Wonderful, beautiful culture. But my question is, what's the point of having a beautiful culture if you can't defend your territory and your sovereignty and your territorial integrity and demographic integrity? So what Bhagyachandra did was that he spent all his attention on culture and art and all that stuff. And he did not specify who should be his successor when he dies. So when he died, at the, at the cusp of the 18th and 19th centuries, his sons started fighting each other to, to determine who will be the next king. So there was infighting among the Metis, Manipuris. And then somebody took advantage of that. Who took advantage? The Burmese kingdom. Okay, not the Cookie Kingdom, but the Burmese. There was no Cookie Kingdom, the Burmese Kingdom from Mandalay. So they invaded Manipur. There was a seven years of horrible devastation. The king of Manipur had to escape into Tripura or Assam or something. And after a few years, he was able to regain the kingdom after seven years, in which Manipur suffered horrific atrocities. But then the British came into the picture because they were already in, in power in, in, in Bengal. And they came and you know brokered a treaty, a peace agreement between Mani, the kingdom of Manipur and the kingdom of Burma. And they were the guarantors of the peace, which means that they were the most powerful power, the British. Eventually, they would go on to invade and occupy Burma as well. But they became the major power in Manipur as well. And the king had to become a vassal of the British. And that's when all these horrible things started. They, the British started forcing the king to uh, to settle these troublemakers from across the border in Manipuri territory. But even in 1900 or 1901, when the last uh, when the British, British census happened, less than 1% of the population of Manipur was Koki. Okay? But today, Manipur is overrun by Kokis. And after 1947, the Indian government continued the same stupid British policies because they, they did not understand this region. So the Nehruvian government just kept on applying the same policies, the same horrible policies to Manipur. So the people of Manipur, were the, the indigenous people of Manipur, the Mites, were forced to live in only 6% of, the, of their territory, Imphal, the Imphal Valley. Only 6%. That is legal apartheid against the Hindus of Manipur. All right. So anyway, so long story short, Myanmar 
may be a dharmic country but these cookies are not myanmaris or dharmic okay they are foreigners even to burma they are foreigners even to burma that's the problem all right let's take some questions from um uh, from the comments that people have uh, posted earlier so let's take this Tushar and Kinchuk, your view on the Iran-Pakistan tensions, does it matter to our interests? And can you put some spotlight on the Iran-Pakistan tension and recent actions? Why so quick hot flares and quick cool down? What happened? What exactly is the deal, right? I mean, so quickly all this happened and suddenly it's all cooled down. Is it natural? Is it is it weird? Is it artificial? That's the question. So one second, let me see. Yeah, all right. So first of all, let's take a look at the map because the map is always our best friend. If you want to understand what's happening, take a look at the map. So here we are. Map on the screen. Here it is. Let's take a look at the two nations, Iran and Pakistan. Our two na- our two neighboring nations. Historically, the Pakistan the current Pakistan-Iran border historically used to be the India-Iran, India-Persia border. Okay? And let me just, before I answer this question, let me put something in context. Iran, Persia, has a rich history of at least two, 3,000 years as a separate entity from India. Okay? The ancient capital of Persia was called Persepolis. That's what the Greeks called it and that's what all the Western writers call it. But what did the Persians call it? What did the Persians themselves call their capital city of Persepolis? They called it Parshwapur. Parshwapur. All right? And this nation, Persia, which is now called Iran, it's historically been called Persia. Where did the name Persia come from? It came from the word Parshwa, the Parshwa people. The Persians are the Parshwa clan of the ancient Indians. Okay? And they migrated westwards long, long, long ago. And they settled this land right next to India. And they created this big civilization here. And Persia, whether it is during the Achaemenid dynasty or other dynasties, okay, it was always an expansionist, aggressive, militaristic, hegemonic empire. Tremendously powerful. They fought the Greeks, they fought the Romans, they fought everybody. And they typically defeated everybody. They defeated the Romans. One of the one of the Roman emperors was taken prisoner by the, by the Persians and uh, ritually humiliated or whatever. I'll not go into the details. Okay, if you are interested, look it up. So, these Persians, they were so vigorous, so mighty, so powerful. They had this expansionist, militaristic, imperialistic tendency always. And they fought everybody. My question is, why did they never fight India? Why did they never even once go to war with ancient India or try to invade India? Why? That's the question I would like you to think about. I'm not going to answer this question here. But here we have Iran and Pakistan. As you can see, Iran is a larger nation. And Pakistan is a smaller nation. But Pakistan, I would say, has about twice, I'd say Pakistan has about twice the uh, population, twice the population as Iran. Roughly, I would say, most likely, roughly, is it? Pakistan, no, Pakistan is three times the population of Iran. So Pakistan has less land area, but three times the population. Now, if you look at other uh, other other factors, okay, then Pakistan's military strength is greater than that of Iran's military strength, and Pakistan's economic strength is slightly less than that of Iran. 
But if you consider these factors together, the area, the population, the economic strength, the military strength, and also nuclear power, and also power projection abilities, you take these factors together and calculate, and also the factor of energy self-sufficiency. If you take all these factors together and you do the calculation, the secret calculation of a nation's actual power, you will find that Iran is more powerful than Pakistan. Iran is about 50% more powerful than Pakistan cumulatively. Cumulatively. But the problem is that Pakistan has nukes and Iran officially doesn't seem to have nukes. Of course, I suspect that by now Iran has uh, enriched sufficient uh, quantities of uh, weapons-grade uranium to maybe, maybe... Uh, construct 5 to 10 nuclear warheads, kiloton warheads, not megaton, but still, you know, I think Iran may be a, an undeclared nuclear power. But Pakistan has the delivery systems. Pakistan has Chinese uh, designs of nuclear weapons and they have, well, officially, I don't know, 130 something nuclear weapons, officially. Uh, unofficially, well, we'll not go there. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so that's the deal. So Pakistan has these uh, strengths, it has certain weaknesses. It is not energetically self-sufficient, which means that it consumes more power than it produces. It has to import oil and gas and petroleum and stuff like that. But Pakistan has a nuclear strength. It has a greater military strength. But overall, Iran is more powerful. The thing is that they are roughly well-matched, Iran and Pakistan. The two nations are roughly well-matched. And uh, so the situation is such that neither nation, if it goes to war, can achieve a decisive or comprehensive victory. It's always going to end in some kind of stalemate. So that's why there's no point for the two nations. It doesn't make any uh, logical sense for the two nations to go to war. Now, what happened is the question, right? Why did the two nations have this issue? So uh, recently, our foreign minister, Dr. Jay Shankar, was in Tehran, capital of Persia. And I think... It is around this time, or just after he left, something like that, that Iran launched cross-border missile strikes across the Pakistan-Iran border into Pakistani territory and targeted uh, Pakistani terrorist camps. So as we all know, Pakistan is the world's uh, center of terrorism. Uh, per capita, Pakistan has, the, has by far the highest number of terrorists in the world per capita. And... Uh, uh, Pakistan, it, it's it's a mercenary state. It's not really a sovereign state. It's uh, always been on the payroll of somebody or the other. It's always been a client state, a vassal state of either the US. For some time, it was China for about a decade or so. Now it's back in the US fold. And their army is nothing but an extension of the geopolitical agenda of the more powerful nation. Okay, And of course, the army itself has a certain agenda. They want to enrich themselves at the cost of the people in the, in the nation of Pakistan. And they want to justify their existence by painting India as the big enemy. India doesn't care about Pakistan. We just want to be left alone. Right? But that's how it is. So Pakistan has is known for sheltering terror, terrorists. They have bled Afghanistan for decades. They have bled India for decades. The United States financed and funded Pakistani terrorism in India for decades. We know it. It's, it's a known fact. The United States did that. And today they preach human rights and all that stuff to us. Anyway, that's a different story. So Pakistan has terrorists. Pakistan has 
targeted India for decades. Pakistan has destroyed essentially Afghanistan, okay, since the 80s. And Pakistan and Iran also have this testy, tense uh, relationship. So before the Ayatollahs came to power in 1979, was it? 79, let's say. If I'm wrong, look up, Google it and find out the date, the year of the Persian Revolution, the Iranian Islamic Revolution. All right, I don't remember every date. I think it's 79, 1979. So before 79, there was a different regime in power in Iran. It was the Shah of Iran, Muhammad Raza Pahlavi. And this gentleman, Mr. Pahlavi, was, well, he had a very pro-US foreign policy. He had essentially opened his nation's uh, petroleum reserves and the... He had given a proper monopoly to the West to exploit these resources. And before, he, before Mr. Pahlavi, there was a guy called Mohammed Mossadegh, who had who was the prime minister. He had nationalized Iran. He had tried to nationalize Iran's energy sector. He tried to kick out British petroleum and all that. And as a result of this, he was regime changed. You know, he was he was he was regime changed by the Americans, by the West. Standard modus operandi. Standards, standard operating procedure. Whenever there's a smallish nation or, or middle middle power whose uh, policies are kind of not in line with the West's policies, effect a regime change. Very simple. That's what the the West does, and then they talk about democracy and freedom and human rights. So Mossadegh was removed. Raza Pahlavi was brought into power, and in 1979, the Ayatollahs came to power. They kicked out Mohammad Raza Pahlavi. The, the Ayatollah Khomeini was in exile in. France, very interestingly, but then he came back to Iran in 79. And that's how the current regime in Tehran came to power. And it, it, is, it is still in, in place in Iran. It still rules Iran. So this is a very a properly theocratic regime. Okay, it's it's a Shiite regime. Shia Islam is the state religion. Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, all these other nations are Sunni nations. So there's an there's this religious angle, religious tension is there. Uh, so there's that and Pakistan is a US vassal and Iran is maybe a, one could say a sworn enemy of the US and Israel. So Pakistan is, is, is has great value to the US. It serves as a counterbalance and destabilizing factor for India but also for Iran. It's fantastic, isn't it, to have a nation that, that, that can serve this, this kind of purpose, kill two birds with the same stone. So that's what Pakistan does. That's the utility Pakistan has for the U.S. and for anybody who is willing to pay enough. But right now it's the U.S. that is the boss, the master in Pakistan. Recently, the Pakistan chief of whatever staff, army staff, went to the U.S. to Washington to pay his respects and his uh, salutes, etc. to his masters. Uh, so Pakistan can be used in a variety of ways to destabilize Iran. And now we have to remember that the border between Iran and Pakistan is the border between the two divided portions of Balochistan. Half of Balochistan is under Pakistani occupation, the eastern part. And the western part of Balochistan is within Iran's current territorial boundaries. So Balochistan is divided between two nations. So if you are to the east of the border, inside Pakistani territory, you have Balochi people who speak the Balochi language. You cross the border, go west into Iran, you have the same people who speak the same language. Okay, interesting. So now the Iranians 
targeted certain Pakistani terrorist positions. The next day, the Pakistanis retaliated and targeted Iranian positions. And they said that Iranians are keeping uh, terrorist, uh, anti-Pakistan terrorist uh, outfits on their soil. So that's what happened. And then the there was a brief breakdown of diplomatic relations. The two nations, uh, the Pakistanis expelled the U.S. ambassador uh, so the, the the Iranian ambassador and recalled their ambassador from Tehran and then things kind of simmered down settled down but things are the, the, the diplomatic relations are back on track okay but the relations are bad between the two nations the two nations don't like each other they don't trust each other the Iranians have no love for Pakistan I promise you that and that is a sentiment that is shared across the West Asia region nobody in the Arabian Peninsula has any especially warm feelings towards Pakistan. Uh, the Saudis don't have any great warmth towards Pakistan, neither do, does anybody in the region. So Pakistan is kind of, uh, well, an almost failed state. It is, is, it is propped up by the West, by the US, because it has this utility as an attack dog. No, uh, uh, no disrespect intended for the... Or, ordinary Pakistanis, but that's just a matter of speech, figure of, figure of speech. So Pakistan is this attack dog, and that's what happened, okay? Uh, now, it makes sense for the two nations to bring the tensions down, because neither nation is in a position that it can fight and defeat the other nation. And if they go to war, it's going to be a ruinous war. Just like the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, which was kind of a proxy war, Iraq, under Saddam Hussein, was then a proxy of the U.S., and Saddam Hussein was instigated to go to war with Iraq, with Iran. And there was a nearly decade-long war which kind of ruined the economies and infrastructure of both nations. So when you have two nations of roughly equal size, roughly equal power, roughly, and they go to war, it's, it's not good for either nation. So there are certain heuristics one must use in calculating which nation can actually win against another nation. And you need a certain amount of strength, relative strength, to be able to essentially guarantee victory. So, yeah, there you are. So that's the deal between Iran and Pakistan. Okay, the, the relations are not good. Iran doesn't like Pakistan. No one likes Pakistan. Pakistan has three neighbors, India, Afghanistan, and Iran. Neither of these neighbors likes Pakistan. Neither of these neighbors wants Pakistan there. Iran, the Persians, I would I would imagine, would be, be way happier for that border to be the India-Iran border. And the Pashtuns would very much like Pakistan to break up and they can retake Pashtunistan, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. So Pakistan is a, is a basket, basket case. It's, it's a, a failed state. It's propped up by a Western power, the US. Earlier it was the UK, now it's the US. In 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 between, there was China also. China also still has some some interest in Pakistan, but that's how it is. So Pakistan is is a temporary nation, and uh, that's where we are now. Let's take a look at some questions from the live chat. All right, let's let's remove this. Here we are. All right. Um, uh, what do we have, uh, Doctor Jay Shankar? <laughs> yeah. Is it is it really necessary to celebrate the 15th of August and recall the thing that a great nation like Bharat got independence from a bunch of islanders? Look, you need certain uh, national celebrations to, as, to serve as a focal point and bring everybody together. See, currently India has is a nation uh, that has a, a tremendous amount, not a tremendous amount, but a significant amount of, of uh, 
division within itself. All these divisions have been created during colonial times. And there are divisions of, of no, Northern India, Southern India, linguistic divisions, and God knows what all divisions, religious divisions. Lots of things uh, have been created to divide Indians among each other. Okay? And many people don't identify with the indigenous civilization and culture of India. They've adopted foreign religions and so on. And I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing out a fact. So now, if you want certain occasions to serve as a focal point, to unify everybody, it makes sense to have certain days like the 15th of August, the 26th of January and whatever else may or may not exist uh, to serve as those things. Obviously, 15th of August 1947 was not Independence Day. It was Dominion Status Day. It was Dominion Status Day. Go check out the actual facts. Okay. So it was Dominion Status Day. It was not Independence Day. And Pakistan was given dominant status before India so that India could not undo that and so on. And then India becomes a republic in the year 1950 and the first and Mr. Nehru is the first selected prime minister. He won the first election in the 1950 or 51 or whichever year. Please look it up. Google it. Yeah. So that's how it is. So obviously it's not Independence Day. It's nothing great to celebrate. Okay. It is the day that we were divided. It is the day our nation was partitioned. We did not even get independence and we, we never decolonized. We have still kept the same system. Lots of problems exist. But we still need certain days as focal points to bring everybody together until we become a more, slightly more unified nation in the future. So I think it's all right. We... The fact is that we were under foreign occupation from a bunch of islanders for about 200 years. And before that, for maybe three, four centuries by a bunch of ragtag nomadic Turks. But that's just the way it is. These are facts of history and we should never forget this history. And we must, we must learn the right lessons from this history. That's what really matters. So uh, never forget, always keep this thing, these things in mind. And as India progresses on the civilization scale and becomes a civilization state all over again, over, over time, then maybe we will have new days that we will celebrate. So right now, the 22nd of January for many Indians is now a new Diwali, essentially. So such things will, will happen more rather than less. And as, as time goes by, things will evolve and things will change. That's just how I see it. All right. Rohit Bide says, what's your take on the current situation of Canada as a nation? And what's your opinion of its economic and demographic future in the coming one or two decades? Uh, interesting question. Let me take a sip of water. Hmm. So, what's the situation of Canada as a nation? <laughs> I don't know why everyone chuckles when when one talks about Canada. So let's let's go to the map. Where is the map? Let us see the map. So, for those of you who don't know, Canada is one of the three major nations in northern. In, in North America, the continent of North America, which is divided from South America by this by this region called Central America. So Canada is north of the US. All right. It's it's uh, larger in territory, in land area than the US. And you have this straight line border, which is typical of settler colonial states, which have been stolen from the indigenous people. You just draw straight lines on the border. So the situation of Canada as a nation is this. So this is my perspective, all right? You may, you don't have to agree with it. The way I see it, Canada is not a sovereign nation. It is under U.S. hegemony. It is under U.S. economic hegemony. It's under U.S. political hegemony. It's under U.S. military hegemony. Much more, one would say, than the NATO nations. 
even these nations in western europe uh, with which are part of nato are under us political and military hegemony and the eu states eu nations are under us economic and political hegemony so all of these nations are under some or the other form of us hegemony even when it comes to the nations of south america they are all under us hegemony the monroe doctrine may be a thing of the 19th century but it's it's extended augmented version unnamed version perhaps still exists and all these nations they make sure that they don't do anything that that displeases the us significantly all right so brazil can be a member of brics but they don't take to they, they cross certain lines that uh, would uh, significantly displace the us otherwise there'll be significant consequences for the leadership and then things will be taken care of so canada is what i would say a client state of the us it's an extension of the us it's a puppet state of the us mr there is no actual political leadership in canada uh, when it comes to canada if you look at the actual laws and the way the laws are written in canada even if you own land or territory or 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 house or property in canada you are only leasing it you don't own it really so then the question is who owns this land of canada and the answer is the the, the force the power the entity the person that owns the land in canada is the crown of england it is which is currently king charles so king charles owns canada by the way king charles also owns australia australia and who owns england well who owns england washington dc owns england and the uk so the center of power right now globally especially in the so called west is the us it's washington dc all right so yeah these are all layers upon layers upon layers of layers upon layer of all these things that are very hard to visualize and and be aware of but that's how it is so the way i see it canada is a puppet state of the us canada is sovereign only in name canada is not really sovereign justin trudeau just trudeau yeah trudeau not beaver trudeau doesn't really have any actual power or whoever will eventually replace him they will not have any actual power just like Rishi Sunak doesn't have any real power just like Olaf Scholz doesn't have any real power and so on okay all these nations are puppet states so is canada canada is a puppet state its sovereignty index from 0 to 1 is 0 it's 0 so that's how i see it what's the other other part of the question economic demographic future well it will serve the interests and the agenda of the us demographically i believe that they are giving visa no no not visas but passports on arrival to to certain flavors of immigrants the moment they reach the airport and they walk off the plane they are giving they are given passports canadian passports but only certain kind of people only certain kind of diversity is allowed so that nonsense is is already happening in canada and i don't have a greatly optimistic uh outlook towards the future of canada sadly i mean canadians are really nice people if you come across a person anywhere in the world who has a north american accent but who is really nice it's going to be a canadian not you know what okay americans are really aggressive brash people loud people opinionated people pushy people canadians are really polite canadians are really well behaved i'm not saying all americans are not well behaved but you get the point on average so canadians are really nice people overall but there you have it that's the situation in canada right now Canada is not a sovereign nation 
and uh, one wonders what is going to happen to its demographics well anyway it's a settler colonial state it's a land that's stolen from the natives the natives have been horrifically marginalized i don't even want to talk about what is what is still being done to the natives okay not second class but third class citizens in north america especially in non urban canada so well so there's nothing for them to complain about i mean the canadian majority demographic they have nothing to complain about come on don't complain uh anyhow there we are okay one has to answer this question at least once in a session <laughs> can india take over pakistan occupied kashmir okay let's compare india and pakistan let's compare the 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 the, the what shall we call it let's compare the national power of india with that of pakistan so first of all let me put the map on the screen because it will show you the scale of the two nations i'm sure everyone in india knows what pakistan looks like but let's anyway put it on the screen so here we have india versus pakistan the two nations on the screen so if we look at uh, if we look at the land area pakistan is no match to india if we look at the population pakistan is no match for india so overall from that perspective india is about four to five times more massive than pakistan if you take the factors of population and land area together if you talk about economic strength india is like 10 times more powerful than pakistan economic strength if you talk about military strength india is about nine times more powerful than pakistan just military strength nuclear strength uh, as per the official narrative pakistan has slightly more nukes than india apparently well if you if you watch one of my older indian interest episodes uh, you will find that i have demonstrated conclusively that india has enough sufficient sufficient fissile material for more than 3000 nuclear warheads but anyway let's let's go by the official figures so pakistan has slightly more nukes than india and india has way more power projection ability than pakistan if you put all this together and pakistan is not a sovereign nation it's a vassal state of the us india is a sovereign nation genuinely so if you look at all this together the indian overall national power is way larger than that of pakistan more than three times larger than that of pakistan economic comparison no match pakistan is no match military comparison no match the only factor is the nuclear dimension so pakistan is a nuclear weapons power whether they have 10 or 160 doesn't matter they have nukes okay and that's that's one of the x factors in geopolitics if you're nuclear weapons power all calculations change you may be significantly weaker than another nation you may be significantly smaller than another nation you may be economically crippled compared to other, another nation but if you have nukes that nation will have to think 300 times before taking certain actions against you so pakistan has nukes we know that they got the nukes from china and europe long story so the question then is can india take over pakistan pok india can okay uh, i think pok may not even be the pakistan army's red line the pakistani army's red line most likely will be punjab you know lahore or or rawalpindi or or a significant breakup of pakistan if you take back pok in a in a lightning move 
they, it may be over before they realize it. But the question is, does India want to take such risks? Does India want to get embroiled in a major military confrontation right now? Especially when you have the China factor as well, which is the real enemy. Pakistan, just leave it alone for now. That's what I would say. Pakistan is not a threat to India. It's a nuisance. It's a nuisance. It's like that. Okay, let's not make that comparison. It's like, it's a nuisance. Pakistan is a nuisance. It, it can, you know, periodically, at a certain frequency, sporadically, keep on hurting India to a certain, ex to a certain extent. And then uh, uh, we have to calibrate our responses accordingly. The main thing is that there are so many internal factors within Pakistan that that create this this force this this force within Pakistan that that threatens to break it apart. So there is very little internal cohesion and harmony in Pakistan. Sindh wants independence. Balochistan wants independence. Khyber Pakhtunwa wants reintegration with with Afghanistan. POK. Gilgit Baltistan, these people, they want to come back to India because they can see across the border how much everything is developed, how, how much happier the people are. So these forces eventually will, at some point in time, if uh, under, circum under certain circumstances, they will spontaneously lead to the breakup of Pakistan. The only thing that's keeping Pakistan together is the foreign power. It, it was the US, then it was China, and it's the US now. So I would say all we have to do is not fight Pakistan right now, not do anything unilaterally right now, just focus on economic and military growth. We need to, first of all, our next target, first target should be becoming the third largest economy in the world. Right now, India is number five. We need to become number three, leapfrog Germany and Japan. That will happen in the next three, two, three years. Then we have to become a $10 trillion economy. And as your economic might grow, your military grows, your military might also grows. And once you reach a certain level, nobody will want to actually, in the right mind, want to fight you in any, any way whatsoever. So that's what India needs to do. So right now, forget about POK. Give it five or ten years. Pakistan is a temporary nation. In a few years, the Pakistan-Iran border will be the India-Iran border. It's going to happen. Okay, it could be five years, it could be 50 years, but it's going to happen. So there we have it. Patience, my friends. Patience. Huh. E2Z vlogs. What about the semiconductor sector of India? Well, we are investing significantly in that. I'll not go into the details because it's a very, very large topic, very vast topic. But we are the Indian government is investing significantly in the semiconductor sector. It it is one of the sectors of special uh of special focus. And I have an entire podcast uh, on the channel. Uh, about semiconductors it 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 came out uh, pretty recently uh, so please check it out and uh, you'll get your, many of your answers in there <laughs> mclovin is the usa going into a civil war well 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 what can i say what's happening in the us yeah okay let's let, let me bring the map back to the united states of americas of america estados unidos estados unidos so why am I speaking in Spanish? It's because of the southern border. The Biden regime has opened up the southern border and it's allowing anybody to cross into the US. Uh, I don't know what the figures are. It, it looks like in the last year, more than two or three million, apparently. You can check out, you can do your own due, due diligence and check the figures. But it looks like 
around 3 million illegal immigrants were allowed to enter the US and they are not only allowed to enter the US they are given uh, documentation identification and they are settled in various parts of the US that's what the Biden regime is doing and the Texas government Texas is a state it's the largest state in the US the lone star state the Texas government has decided to put up a razor wire across the across the border okay now this is not a state border it's an international border so the Biden regime is is has told the Texas government to stop doing this and hand back control of the international border to the uh, to the uh, central forces let's say and texas has refused and texas has as i believe accused biden and his regime of high treason and all the states where they have republican majorities are supporting texas Okay so I'm not saying that the US is going to go into a civil war but the the these this looks like the initial stages of something that happened in the 19th century and that's why everyone's uh, talking about civil war right now because Texas is refusing to obey the orders of the White House and they're doubling down on securing their border and the question is how can the US government insist on doing something that is blatantly illegal according to their own laws let's say somebody from india wants to immigrate to the us you have to go through the proper procedures you have to apply for a visa answer all their questions provide all the paperwork then you go there on a certain kind of visa then you have to wait for 78 years to get a green card and then another 300 years to get a citizenship but for certain flavors of immigrants you can just cross across the southern border across the rio grande come into the us and you're given you know paperwork immediately documents driver's license whatever documentation is given and then you are settled in some city nice cozy city in the us on taxpayer money and so on and i'm I, allegedly some of these people may even be allowed to vote if you have certain kinds of identification you can vote you may even become part of the police force so that's the kind of absolutely blatantly crazy thing the biden government is doing the biden regime is doing and texas has put its foot down and you know what what's funny you know what's funny india had invited uh, the geriatric president biden as a courtesy to be the chief guest in yesterday's republic day celebrations in new delhi today is the 27th of january yesterday was india's republic day 26th of january so india had invited biden he had accepted but then there was this issue the americans accused india of of allegedly attempting a hit on a us supported uh, terrorist gur patwant pannu or whatever the hell his name is okay he's a terrorist who is apparently a cia agent who's an anti india terrorist is is threatening to blow up india's parliament and to, and to blow up indian planes air india planes so the americans shelter this sort of people okay and they they have accused india of allegedly trying to kill this guy on us soil a us citizen on us soil so because of this diplomatic uh, issue biden then pulled out of the republic day thing and then uh, monsieur macron of france very kindly agreed to step in and he was yesterday's republic day guest in new delhi what's funny is that biden refused to come despite accepting earlier but the governor of texas 
the governor in the US is like the chief minister in India. So the governor of Texas was in New Delhi. He attended India's Republic Day celebrations, even though Biden refused to come. And right now his state is, is involved in a standoff against the White House. So I would not say we are in a civil war situation right now, but certain lines are being drawn right now. Certain very rigid lines are being, are being drawn right now. And the most incredible thing is that the US government, the White House, wants to do things that are completely illegal according, according to US law. The US is no longer a nation of laws, clearly. It's a nation in, in very bad decline, very bad social decline. Very The standards have dropped so badly. My God, the one thing about the US in the 1950s and 60s, even the 70s, was the standards by against which they held themselves. There was something called American exceptionalism. That was their national ideology. Today, it's American mediocrity. The lower the depths we plumb, the happier we are. So, yeah, that nation, I don't have, uh, I know what to say. It's not a nation in decline from a power perspective. It is way ahead of any other nation in terms of hard power. Okay, in terms of power projection, no one can match it. China is not even a match, even one third of the US. Okay, China is nowhere near the US, not even close. But in terms of standards, the nation, the US, is in decline. And it's typically there that the decline begins in an empire. Look at the history of the Roman Empire. Where did the, did the decline begin? Not in the hard power. The decline started in the standards. So you have a decline in the standards of the US. It, it's, an, it's becoming increasingly a nation of progressively lower standards. And the kind of government they have is, is uh, ridiculous. So there we are. So not yet a civil war, but yeah, people are now speaking openly of a civil war. Well, sad. Okay. Um, Natasha says, had a Come across the info that Texas is not part of the U.S. It's part of its. It has its own constitution as well. I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can't recall whether they have their own constitution. But if you have seen it, it may be so. So I would. I would urge the viewers to check it out. Even I will check it out. Just why don't we do it live? Yeah, let's go to our good friend Google, and check out whether Texas, like Natasha says, I'm sure she's right. Whether Texas has its own constitution. Texas constitution. Let's do it. Texas. Oh, yeah, yeah, my spelling. Texas Constitution. The Constitution of the State of Texas is the document that, that's it, blah, 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 handwritten, blah, blah. Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information, but I'm just looking at it for the sake of very rapid convenience. So, yes, I am. it's pretty clear that Natasha is 100% right. Texas has its own constitution, but it is a part of the US. So, that's where I would disagree. Texas is a part of the US, it's part of the Union. You know, before the Civil War in the mid-19th century, uh, they used to refer to the United States as the United States are. After the Civil War, they changed that to say the United States is, not are. So it became a single entity instead of a, of a plural uh, kind of entity. Uh, so, so Texas is indeed a part of the US. It's one of the 50 states. But Texas has always been this... this this state with a mind of its own, the, the Lone Star State. And there have been calls sporadically for the secession of Texas from the US, way after 
the civil war ended, even in the 20th century. I'm sure other states may also have their constitutions in the US. Uh, so, you know, the fact about the US is this. The US is a settler colonial nation. It is a nation that was created out of somebody else's land and territory. And it was it was settled by replacing the native indigenous population of this region. The natives have been essentially wiped out and whoever is still alive is badly marginalized. So it is a settler colonial nation. It's an artificial nation. Uh, Pakistan, we know, is an artificial nation. So, so is the US. So is Canada. And so are many of the nations that are post-colonial or settler colonial nations in the Americas. Uh, so when you have an artificial nation the, and a nation that's made of immigrants from God knows what part of the world, then there is very little they have in common. Even the language now is not that much in common. The I think the Spanish language is one of the major languages in the US. This is definitely the number two language and so on. And there is very little cultural or, or ethnic connection between all the people in the US, lots of different ethnicities, lots of different linguistic backgrounds, lots of different cultural backgrounds. So what do they have in common? Very little. They have a constitution, they have laws and all. So it's a nation of laws, it's a nation of police police enforcement. It's a police state. The US is a police state, by the way. You go to New York City, you take away the cops for 50... See, if you go to New York City, you will see cops everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Every single... Anywhere you look, you will see cop cars and cops. You take away the cops, the police from New York City for 15 minutes, the city is going to descend into riots. The US is a police state. It's held together by force. The force is something you see everywhere, but you don't pay attention to. Okay? So some people would say that Iran is a police state. Yeah, sure. So is the US. The US much more than, than Iran. So it's an artificial nation, and artificial nations typically don't last forever. Civilizations can last for thousands of years. Rome as an empire lasted let's say, 1500 years, roughly, especially the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, Istanbul, Constantinople. But uh, the US, it's already in decline. The standards are, are, are badly in decline. There you have it. Okay, let's take uh, let's talk about something else. Asad Vivedi says, the same police girl killed an Indian girl. Yes, I do remember, recall something, some Indian girl being shot and then they were, the cop was laughing at the fact that he killed the girl. Yeah, Police brutality is, is par for the course in the US, unfortunately. Sadly. Sadly for the people. But yeah. Okay, let's take a question from the previous comments. This is by Rin again. Have you heard about free Burma Rangers? Operation 1107 and Operation 1027 in Burma. So, circling back to Manipur. We were talking about Manipur some time ago. Let's go back to Manipur. What is this free Burma Rangers nonsense? It's a Christian organization, probably uh, based out of the US, whose only purpose is to convert the people of the places they operate in to Christianity. So they are actively doing this in this war zone in Burma right now. There's a civil war going on in Burma, foreign-sponsored civil war. So these uh, free Burma Rangers individuals, they are active in Burma and they are, uh, they are uh, in, embedded within the anti-government forces, which means the non-Burmese forces that are occupying Burma and also parts of Manipur. Okay? And they, they, their agenda is to convert as many people as possible to, to, to Christianity. So that is Free Burma Rangers that shows the kind of US hand there is in what's happening in, in Burma and by extension in India's Far East, in, in Manipur. Okay, And they're specifically targeting Manipur because Manipur is the, large, is the last non-converted population in India's Far East. Even though when it comes to the Maithis, about 2.5 lakhs recently have got converted to Christianity. 
so they are no longer mitis yeah you convert to a foreign religion you no are no longer part of the indigenous culture that's as simple as it is and if the mitis don't realize it they need to wake up pretty quickly so so the free burma rangers are these uh, are an evangelical uh, imperialist american organization that is involved in you know interfering in the internal affairs of a sovereign nation burma myanmar uh, operation 1107 operation 1027 so it's uh, these are dates 1107 which means november 7 and 1027 probably means uh, october 27 so these are various anti government operations military operations that are active in northern and uh, eastern etc parts of burma there are i think three uh military outfits insurgent outfits terrorist outfits whatever you want to call it there are active three major uh, outfits one is the arakan army then there is uh, there there are these uh, you know other other organizations that are supported by china or the us and they are part of the cookie influx into india uh, and so on so these are all and and they have had great success these two operations 1107 1027 they've had great success in the, against the burmese government in the last let's say 3 months they have been able to capture significant amounts of territory from the burmese government from the military junta in burma and apparently there is some element of chinese support in this so i think the chinese are trying to put the government of burma in in a disadvantageous position so that they can extract concessions from them so what do the chinese want in this so the chinese obviously see burma as a resource rich country that they can exploit for natural resources and burma has a very nice very long maritime boundary and the chinese want to establish ports in in places like rakhine state was it sitwe was it where was it i think it was um, okay i don't remember where it was i can look it up later but somewhere in the rakhine state the chinese want to establish a major port a deep water port which can enable them to keep an eye on what's happening in the bay of bengal region and give them power projection abilities in this region so right now they don't have any such place they have hanbantota which is kind of well uh, which uh, which is no longer very much under their control the way they would like it to be they would like more control it's not so and the lakshad the, the maldivian government is currently uh, cooperating with china and giving them uh, certain uh, uh, you know incentives and things but it, uh, one wonders how long that lasts so the chinese want more options they have a port in djibouti a military base in djibouti in the horn of africa right right to the south of yemen across the strait of bab al mandeb between the gulf of aden and the red sea and the chinese want a, a, at least one port in myanmar so if they can place the government of myanmar burma in a significantly tight spot in a very disadvantageous position then they can extract big concessions from them and then bail them out so these anti government forces some of them they all get their arms and ammunition from china by the way okay china is the place from which where the arms and ammunition is coming and all of that is is pouring into manipur also by the way okay so the chinese are playing multiple games they're playing a complex game they probably do want the government in burma to stay on the military government but they want to squeeze it they want to pressurize it to extract concessions they want to destabilize india as a result they want to keep the americans as far away as possible even though they are already involved in this matter so so that's the situation 
So these operations are ongoing operations. They are reasonably successful operations in Burma. The Free Burma Rangers are the American presence in Myanmar. These two operations are kind of, there's a Chinese hand to some extent in these operations. All right. Kiruma Suichi, Kiruma Suichi says, was Balochistan ever part of proper Indian civilization? Not greater Indian civilization like Iran, Xinjiang, Central Asia, but proper Indian civilization. Have you heard of the Paratha Raj dynasty? Paratha Raj dynasty? Let's, let's look it up, shall we? Let's look it up. Uh, let us go to our best friend Google. And we shall do a Google search. And we shall try and search for the Paratha Raja dynasty. P-A-R-A-T-A-R-A-J-A-D-Y-N-A-S-T-Y. And what do we get? Paratha Rajas. So, what does it say? Or Paratha Raja was a dynasty of Parthian kings. Of course, everything has to be Iranian or Parthian. In the territory of modern-day Western Pakistan, which is Balochistan, by the way. All right? So, let's take a look at images. Now, does this look like a Persian image to you, my dear friends? Is Persia, is Zoroastrian Persia well known for this specific symbol called the swastik? <laughs> Here is another coin from the Parataraj's. Again, a swastik. Again, a swastika. And here, I'm not sure what it is, but here we have it. So, there you have it. These were, these were an Indian dynasty. Um, and of course, there is an element of of Persian influence. There'll be an element of Scythian influence, and so on and so forth. It was this is the the far east, the far west of India. So India and Persia were always always neighbors. And it was the the Balochistan region west of Sindh that was typically the evolving boundary of India and Persia. Boundaries are never are never static. They always change from time to time, century upon century, decade upon decade. So the Paratharajas ruled in Balochistan roughly two thousand years ago. Roughly, roughly, give or take. And they clearly had Indian iconography symbology on their coins. Okay, so uh, listen, do your own research. I'm just giving, showing you the direction. So I gave you this name, the Paratharaja dynasty. Go and search for it. Go and look up the history. See who, which dynasty came before them. See which dynasty came after them. And see the continuity, the cultural and civilizational continuity. So that's how you do your own research. All right. G study says, please introduce yourself in Hindi. Namaskar, my name is Abhijit Chavda and I am very proud of you today. I am very proud of you today. Harish Hari, does Putin want Alaska back? Uh, well, eventually, why not? But what Putin really wants was a is a resurgence of Russia and the stabilization of, of Russia's uh, zone of influence. So every empire, every civilization has an extended zone of influence, which is cultural, economic, and military influence, including a zone, an extraterritorial extra zone of exclusive influence where nobody else dare intrude. And the Americans have dared, intruded, dared intrude into Russia's exclusive zone, zone by trying to subvert Ukraine. And we are seeing the consequences of that. So does Putin want Alaska back? I would say that Alaska is far, far from his mind. He, he may joke about it, but he wants to stabilize and consolidate Russia's extraterritorial exclusive zone of influence. All right. Okay, please answer my question next. 
all right, what's your question? I need to find a question. There are there's a million questions here, and I'm not able to find. I've scrolled through a lot. So if I see it, I'll answer it. But I did see your question. This one. Um, okay. Oh, mm, what else? Um, 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 um. Benzine, do we think? Uh, do, do you think we are doing the right thing by supporting Israel? Are we supporting Israel? Look, when it comes to uh, voting in the UN, India typically abstains from votes about Israel-Palestine. India sometimes even votes for Palestine and against Israel once in a while. And uh, when it comes to uh, condemning terrorist activities, India will always condemn terrorist activities. So India is not explicitly supporting Israel versus Palestine. But if you look at, look, this is just the logic of strategy. This is how geopolitics works. You have, you means you as a nation, every nation has a very clear set of national interests. Okay, national interest. Every nation has national interests, a set of national interests. There are vital interests, there are important interests, and there are peripheral interests. Peripheral. So vital interests are a certain category of interests and so on and so forth. So every nation knows what its interests are. Now, you want to do whatever it takes to further and advance your interests, right? So I want to advance my interests. My friend Israel wants to advance his, his interests. My other friend Persia wants to advance his Everybody wants to advance their interests. Now, I have to see that my interests can be advanced in these manners. Which other nations are, exist around me where we have a convergence of interests, where we want more or less the same thing, and we have more or less the same kind of threats. So if you look at these, these factors together, you will find that India and Israel have a tremendous amount of convergence. So then why would India not work together with Israel? There is no right or wrong in geopolitics. There is no morality in geopolitics. This is wrong. This is right. No, 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 no. There is no uh, space for morality and sentiment and all these things in geopolitics. It's all about prioritizing your national interest. That's all it is. And we are doing absolutely the right thing by prioritizing our national interest. India first. India first always. And whoever will work with us, we will work with them and we'll support them. So that's how it goes. Right. Saurabh Sina says, why are we failing in jet engines? Importing from the West and Russia is not the way. We can proceed strategically, I guess. I'm not sure what you mean by proceeding strategically, but let me answer the question, which is a very good question. Why are we failing in jet engines? Look, we haven't failed in jet engines. We uh, we have the GT gas turbine, turbine research establishment or whatever it is called in Bangalore. They have been working on an engine they call Kaveri. They have achieved a certain amount of thrust. The engine works. You can use that in... A certain class of aircraft. You can use it in missiles. You can use it in drones. So the engine works. The question is, how much thrust do we actually want? So it has, I don't know how much, 60, 70 kilonewtons of thrust or something. It works. But we want 120, or let's say we want 110, or let's say we want 95 kiloton, uh, kilonewtons of thrust. We want a certain amount of thrust, and we have achieved a certain amount of thrust. Why are we not able to achieve that? We, we will achieve it, but it takes time. Look at the development life cycle of the foreign engines. The French engines, the Rolls-Royce engines in the UK, the American engines, the Russian engines, and so on. They have been iteratively developing these engines for the past 70-80 years. The first jet engines were developed in Germany. 
I'm uh, suppose you know it. Those were pulse jet engines, I believe. They were used on the V2 cruise missile, the world's first cruise missile. And so I'll not go into the history. It takes decades to develop this technology. We have done a reasonably good job at achieving what we have achieved right now. But what we need is we need a quantum leap. We need to very quickly develop an engine that we can use in certain kinds of fighter jets. So the Tejas is a single engine jet. Then you will have um, advanced medium combat aircraft, AMCA. There's a TEBDF, twin engine uh, TEDBF, twin engine deck based fighter, which is supposed to take off and land in from aircraft carriers and so on and so forth. There is the AMCA, um, so on. So some of these will be dual engine, twin engine aircraft. Some of them will be single engine aircraft. And we have certain other things also coming up. I'll not talk about those. So we have a certain capacity. Our engine can produce a certain amount of thrust, certain amount of thrust, but we need a different kind of thrust. So it makes sense, if possible, to acquire the technology for somebody else. Now I'll tell you something. If you look at history, no nation ever transfers jet engine technology to any other nation. Even very friendly nations don't do that. And now there's talk about France, possibly uh, the French uh, French company Safran. They probably are in talks with the Indian government, with the French government and Indian government as the interface, uh, to transfer jet engine technology to India. Um, I think we are in the initial phase of the talks. I am not extremely optimistic about this. So the point is this, that, you know, jet engines are extremely complex machines and the temperature and pressure within a jet engine is ridiculously high. The temperature and pressure is such that it, it will easily melt steel. Now, the, 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 the turbine inside the jet engine, it has blades. Okay, you suck in air from the from the front, you inject a fuel fuel air mixture, you ignite that, and that explosive ignition produces the thrust. And it also drives the, the turbine blade, which generates electricity and sucks in more air. So it's kind of a self-sustaining to some extent mechanism. But the temperature and pressure inside is ridiculously high. It will melt steel. Then what do we use inside? as the material for the, for the turbine blades and the and the, the casing and all that what do we use so in the west they use single crystal alloys the entire blade a single blade of the turbine is grown as a single metallic alloy crystal and there's a very specific process that's used for this and the technology and, and the technological know-how we need to, to develop this, to be able to do this, takes a lot of time. It takes decades to develop. And they have invested the decades. Whereas we did not invest the decades. Our previous governments did not prioritize, did not prioritize jet engine development. So now the Modi government is now being told that you need to do this in the next two years. All this pressure from all across the Indian citizenry. Everyone is saying, oh, we have been doing this for decades. No, we have not been doing anything. The Tejas aircraft itself was, the, the development project was stalled for decades. It was conceived in the 80s, 1980s. So why did it only take off after Vajpayee came to power? And again, it was dead for a decade and so on. So the point is, the governments in the past have made, have done their best to scuttle India's indigenous defense uh, manufacturing capabilities because they wanted to import arms, ammunition, etc. from the West, from abroad and take kickbacks up allegedly. 
so there we have it so uh, hopefully this uh, indo french thing works out then we can you know just acquire the know how and start building our own engines or if it doesn't work out which is possibly more likely then we have to be prepared to spend a decade or two uh, perfecting the jet uh, developing the jet engine technology even the chinese they still use russian engines the saturn engine and whatever other engine their jet engines still don't work properly okay their jet engines still have a very short life so the chinese themselves are struggling with this indians uh, have this great regard for chinese right well they, they themselves are struggling with jet engine technology okay okay long enough question let's take some more questions um um mr schmidt i'm sorry what on earth i am not talking about shaja i'm sorry about that the first jet was the mr schmidt 262 but okay Yes, you are right. There were the Stukas, the Focke Wolfers, the Meister Schmidts, the Henkels. So many of these uh, German, incredibly advanced for their time, fighter planes. But yeah, one of the Meister, Meister Schmidts was the first jet engine plane. But if I am not mistaken, I could be mistaken. But if my memory serves me right, the first jet engine was used on the V two cruise missile, possibly before it was used on the Meister Schmidt. Possibly, I may be wrong. But yeah, they, it's a it's a good point you made. The Meister Schmidt, you. pointed out over here it's an interesting plane and i would encourage people who are interested in aviation and history and all this check it out okay where are we oh once again pog are bhai <laughs> how many times do i answer the pog question chirag avasti says how can we say india france relationship will be a separate pole such as russia china in future keeping in mind us as their big daddy can they free, how can they break free of us control okay for that we have to go and check out the map so that we understand the french perspective of the world so one second let me put the map where's the map where's the map here's the map so we are talking about france france is this nation in western europe now i will go ahead and say that france from the perspective of overall national power is the most powerful nation in western europe if we disregard the fact that most of these nations are not completely sovereign in the case of germany it is not sovereign at all it has a sovereignty of zero because it is under permanent us military occupation france is not and france has its own independent nuclear deterrent its own nuclear warheads mated to french nuclear missiles that are sitting inside french nuclear submarines that are on permanent patrol worldwide so the french have their own nuclear deterrent the uk's nuclear deterrent is a de deterrent in name only the uk's nuclear warheads are mated to american missiles which means that the big red button is in washington not in the hands of mr rishi sunak sadly so france is the only nation in western europe which is either eu member or a nato member that has a quasi independent foreign policy france has a significant amount of power projection in western africa in the sahel region of africa the entire uh, francophone region of africa okay they have a stranglehold on the economies of many of these nations through the uh, through the cfa franc that comes in two flavors we have spoken about that many times before and the french also have significant possessions in the indian ocean region for example the french southern antarctic lands port of france port douzieme port jandark and so on kerguelen islands 
this is a British possession, I believe, but this is a French possession, the French Southern and Antarctic Islands, okay, uh, which is kind of north of Antarctica and southeast of Madagascar. And we have some, some other islands as well. I'm not sure who. This is South Africa. All right, that's fine. Uh, this, Alfred. Okay, this also could be, yes, French island. There we have it, French islands. And also, we also have uh, what we know as a Réunion, which is a French uh, possession. Okay, Réunion is French. Pour Matura, I'm not sure who. I think it could be Mauritius. Yeah, it's part of Mauritius. And uh, La Fourche could be Mauritius. Yes, Seychelles is independent now, but uh, it was once in the French, uh, you know, whatever uh, thing. Mayotte, I can't recall who owns it. But my point, the point I'm trying to make is that France has a significant interest, geopolitical interest, power projection interest, and territorial interest in the Indian Ocean region. They also have a significant amount of influence in the Southern Pacific. Okay. Uh, many of these little nations and islands, French Polynesia, for example, Bora Bora, for example, and so on, there's a certain amount of French interest there also. So if we if you take all of this into consideration, you could say that France has, France has a significant amount of power projection ability. They, I don't know how many aircraft carriers they have. Shall we find out? Let's find out how many aircraft carriers they have. Please give me a second. I shall put Google on the screen. Uh, French aircraft carriers. They have nuclear submarines. Okay. Uh, number of French nuclear submarines. How many do they have? Okay, they have six, which means that at least two are on patrol at any given point in time. How did I come up with this number of two? Do some homework. <laughs> French aircraft carriers. So if you have X, let's say N number of, of naval assets, at any given point in time, on average, one third of those are operationally deployed only one third that's how it goes aircraft carriers how many do they have 15 but what is the current situation only one tell the goal okay so the french have one aircraft carrier and six nuclear submarines which is i would say very respectable yes so as you can see they have a significant uh geopolitical reach they have power, a significant amount of power projection they can enforce power projection through their naval strength reasonably good naval strength they have a good nuclear deterrent and so on so and they have a quasi-independent foreign policy and they do not see the us as a friendly nation if you ask french french intelligence privately you will see a very interesting perspective come out from there france does not see the us as a friendly nation it sees the us as an adversarial nation as as a rival okay so that's why the french are so so uh happy to work together with india because there is this tremendous convergence of interests we in india have a significant interest in the stability and the safety of the indian ocean region we see it as our strategic backyard and we are now beginning to develop the naval might to actually turn it into our actual strategic backyard not just in words but de facto strategic backyard and that zone of influence of ours it intersects with the zone of interest of the french because they also have possessions there and why not work together and it helps us it helps them as well and they would like 
they would like to tap into india's gigantic and growing economy and we want military equipment we want technology we want uh, all kinds of things so we can certainly work together so um i don't see in the india france relationship will be an actual separate pole but it's going to be a very important geopolitical factor going forward so yeah that's how i see it uh, the, can the french break free of us control uh, not any time in the immediate future sadly the the us is way 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 too powerful compared to the entirety of western europe nato plus eu put together still more powerful way more powerful way more powerful than china and at least twice as powerful as russia that's what the us is so yeah all right let's see what else um <laughs> let us see what else do we have Okay, Mishmish says, just bought your geopolitical course, excited to start, but the course videos are not displayed on the modules play page. I have emailed the support team. Okay, uh, you may have missed what I said. The course becomes live on the 1st of February. Right now, it is not live. Right now, it is the pre-order stage. So if you order now, you get a discount. That's how it is. If you order, if you if you purchase it on the first of February, you will have to pay a higher you will pay a higher price. So you did you did the right thing by purchasing it now. You got a discount, which was automatically applied, and the course will go live on the first of February. That's when you will get access to the videos, and that's when I will do a a special live stream in which I will go through the entire course. Okay, so that is February one. So please wait for a few days. It's gonna uh, appear live. Soon, soon enough. Ayush Thinglu says, Vivek Ramaswamy quits the 2024 presidential race. Who, according to you, is going to win? Um, maybe Michelle Obama. I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, so, so look, it's clear that Mr. Biden is not going to be the next nominee for the Democratic Party, even though he is the incumbent president and he has just served one term. So he can run for another term, but obviously his mental state is not such that he can take care of himself, let alone run a nation. So clearly he is not going to be, I mean, if I mean, they can still make him run, but it makes no sense. They'll lose that way. Nobody will vote for him and nobody will vote for Kamala Harris. So who could it be from the Democratic Party? to stand up against Trump from the Republican side because it's clear that it will most likely be Trump who will be the presidential candidate for the Republicans. So who could it be from the Democratic side? Who can we think of? So I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing Michelle Obama, perhaps. I mean, let's say the US is a nation of, it's an oligarchic nation. It's a, it's a nepotistic nation. Whether you realize it or not. Okay. So it could be someone like Michelle Obama or maybe, maybe uh, who could it be? Obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger can't do it because he was born abroad, not in the US. Otherwise, he would have loved to run for president. Arnie, I'll be back. Uh, so who could it be? Oprah Winfrey, perhaps. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Could be some entertainer of some kind. Just be, People will just come and vote for him or her, whoever. Or it could be Michelle Obama. Or, or who knows? They'll throw somebody else up. But uh, from the Republican side, Vivek has uh, predictably thrown his weight behind Donald Trump. So the thing about Vivek is this. You know, a, a couple of years ago or sometime in the past, uh, I was on uh, the Ranveer show, Ranveer, Ranveer Alabadi's podcast. And uh, 
I have done a whole bunch of podcasts with him. Always fun talking to him. Great fun. So he asked me about. Uh, he asked me my opinion about whether Mr. Rahul Gandhi could be a good prime prime ministerial candidate. And I answered him very honestly. I said that I don't know. I don't know because he doesn't have a track record, a public track record. He has never served as the mayor of a city or 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 the chief minister of a state or or in any capacity, by which would enable us to judge or gauge what capabilities he has as an administrator as as somebody who governs a certain amount of uh, territory or or that sort of thing we have no idea we have no bases by which we can judge his abilities his strengths his weaknesses his plus points his negative points his overall ability there's no way of judging it similarly when it comes to vivek ramaswamy he has no public track record he has never served in any public position so he's great at talking he is tremendously gifted at talking he is tremendously articulate and he's always on the point and and he can demolish any argument especially when he has the facts and the truth on his side so it's like whenever he goes on a news channel those people are like scared because he's going to tear them to pieces that's how good he is and he is a self-made billionaire so he's good at business but he has no public track record when it comes to governance all right so it makes sense for somebody like him who has appeared out of nowhere and made such a huge impression to now throw his weight behind the big guy trump and endorse trump and appear with trump in all these rallies and all these events which is going to raise vivek's profile as well and it's going to show the voter that vivek is loyal is loyal to the boss is loyal to the big man you see is important so he's showing his loyalty he's showing his loyalty to the party to trump to maga and so on and his hope i would say is that if donald trump wins the presidency then he will get a reasonably good cabinet position a reasonably high ranking position hopefully even vice president even though that may be a little bit iffy but he will get some kind of senior position and then he can build a track record over the next 4 years so that he can then be a serious candidate for 2028 that's vivek's deal the way i see it so who's going to win uh i somehow get the feeling trump won't win because he's an outsider he's a perennial outsider in politics you know where does power come from <clears throat> excuse me power is extremely important in politics and in geopolitics and i speak about power in my in my course there's a whole there are two sections on power but okay let's come back to this power where does power come from power always trumps money if you watch my old, one of my oldest videos the chinggis khan video one of the main points in that video is that power always trumps money you may have all the money in the world but a but a powerful person can take it away from you anytime and there's a difference between power and influence and power and wealth you may be wealthy but you may be powerless and so on so where does what what is it that makes power that makes somebody powerful it's networks and connections and trump is a very well connected and very well networked guy so why is he powerless in politics because his network and his connections are all in the world of entrepreneurship and business and police and so on okay but not at the top level in politics so for, for them he's an outsider 
So even his party, even the elite politicians in his party see him as an outsider and they don't, they don't like him. That is the thing that is there against Trump. And he wants to clean up the system. Well, the system won't like it. The system is more powerful than any individual politician. So I get the feeling it is unlikely that Trump will win. Obviously, I could be wrong. I don't make predictions, but I think on balance, the probability that somebody else will win from the Democratic side could possibly be higher. So who's going to be the Democratic candidate, if not Biden? It could be Hillary again. <laughs> Hillary Clinton could come back again, perhaps. Or it could be uh, a dark horse, a completely left-field candidate. Perhaps perhaps Michelle Obama, perhaps Oprah Winfrey, perhaps Dwayne Johnson. Or who knows who else? Somebody else. We'll see. We shall see. How do I see Africa in 2024? Africa is... Well, it's not going to be a place of great stability. We have coups. We have counter coups in Africa. The Sahel region, which is known as the coup belt, has seen a lot of uh, of all this activity last year itself. We had the coup in Niger. We had the coup in uh, other Mali as well. Um, and there's a lot of instability over here. There's a pushback against France. There, there is Russia getting involved in the matter. The Wagner Group is significantly involved. I don't know if it still exists officially or not, because apparently Mr. Prigozhin has passed away in a plane crash. And uh, so what shape and form has the Wagner group taken now? Obviously, they would not just kill off that group. They would not just uh, end its existence. It would still, it is still a powerful, potent force of power projection for Russia. And they have a major presence in Africa. So Africa essentially is the place where the Cold War 2.0, one of the places where the Cold War 2.0 is being played out. It's a place where you have proxy wars, where you have proxy coups, where you have regime change attempts and counter attempts and all that. So I think more of, more of this will continue in 2024. I don't see things will change a lot, which is tremendously sad for the people of Africa because they once had great culture, great civilization. They had their own kingdoms and empires and civilizations. All of that was smashed out of existence. And today they are all living in under the most horrible circumstances. Some are, of course, better off than the others. But some most of Africa is, is, in, is in a deep poverty. And it's all artificially induced for the purpose of extracting resources out of Africa. Uh, the West has been the major culprit, but now even China is part of it. And the Russians are just helping out and uh, looking for their own interests. So I see much of the same continuing in uh, 2024. All right. Um, mm, <laughs> what else? What else? Okay, Saksham Chauhan says, where do you see Indian GDP in 2035? Uh, Look, uh, we are in 2024. Our GDP is what, 3 point something, 3.6, 3.7 trillion dollars? Yes. Um, assuming we grow at 7, 6, 7, 8, something like that percent per year. Uh, so, how much do you So, by 25 end, 24 end, maybe by mid 25, we could be a 4 trillion dollar economy. 4.4, 4.5. So, another by 27, we could be a 6 trillion dollar economy and we will have leapfrogged uh, Japan. And uh, Germany, so that's six by twenty-seven, and you grow thirty. So by twenty thirty, we could be let's say roughly eight trillion. Okay, roughly eight trillion. By twenty thirty-five, we could be a ten trillion dollar economy. Yeah, I'm just doing some very rough, very basic uh, 
mental calculations, maybe a $10 trillion economy by 2035. Yeah. Uh, if we don't get uh, embroiled in any major military conflict or don't do anything stupid or some, or we don't elect the wrong person to power. Okay. So that's all up to you, my friends. Make sure you elect, you vote wisely. That's all I'd say. All right. All right. All right. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What else do we have? Um, hmm. All right. Tibetan film industry says, why is the Tibetan cause Tibetan cause very important for India? Well, let's take a look at the map, as always. So, on the map, there is no nation called Tibet, because Tibet is not a recognized nation anyway, today. It is not a sovereign nation anymore. The people of Tibet no longer have self-determination. Right? They, they are no, no longer in control of their own destiny. They uh, don't... So the deal is this. Historically, Tibet was an independent entity, a sovereign entity. It was a sovereign kingdom. And there was a time in Tibet, about 12, 1300 years ago, when Tibet was an extremely militaristically aggressive and powerful nation. They, cap they captured at the, the then capital of China. Which was it? Xi'an was it? Uh, I forget which city was the capital of China at the time. It was not Beijing then. It was another city. The, the Tibetans conquered that city and they installed a puppet emperor over there. So that's how powerful they were. So Tibet has always been an independent nation that has separated uh, the Sinosphere from the Indosphere. And Tibet has always been a part of the Indosphere. It was always a part of the overall civilizational extent of India, even though ethnically, linguistically, it is different from India. But culturally, it has its own manifestation of Indian culture. So Tibet was part of the Indian civilizational zone. And Mr. Nehru gave that away to China. Now, for the first time in almost 3,000 years, for the first time since China existed, China and India became neighbors and had a common border. That's when Mr. this happened when Mr. Nehru allowed China to conquer Tibet by giving tremendous amounts of rice to the Chinese soldiers who were starving. So for the first time, you have two major powers, India and China, that have a common border. And when that happens, there's always going to be conflict. Because two nations of such immense amounts of power and area and population, if they have a common border, there's going to be clashes. That is, which is the same reason why the Russia-China border can never be secure, can never be safe, and there's always going to be disputes, which is right now happening. The Chinese have raised a new territorial dispute, an old one, with Russia. So, so therefore, for India and China to be at peace and have friendly relations like they have always had, it is vital for Tibet to be an independent nation. So that's why, that's one, that is the cold, hard, selfish way of looking at it. Why India wants Tibetan independence. Okay, that's because it's in, it is in our national interest. But on the other side, we also have very ancient cultural and people-to-people -people relationships with the people of Tibet. And, and we value that. And the people of Tibet are wonderful people. And they deserve their independence. And they, they deserve their self their right to self-determination. They deserve for they deserve their, their culture and their language to keep on existing and not be, be replaced by Chinese culture and language. 
So this, these are the reasons why Tibet, the cause of Tibet is very important for India and uh, India and China will be at peace only when Tibet is free again, independent of China again, which uh, probably will take longer than the reintegration of POK with India, but it will happen eventually. Okay. My take on Nitish Kumar, I have no take on Nitish Kumar. I don't talk about national uh, internal politics. I talk about geopolitics. So I don't follow this too. I do follow some of it, but uh, yeah, I I don't analyze this in great detail and I, I don't talk about it. So yeah, so you want to ask me questions, ask me about geopolitics and history and science if you like. You can ask me about science. All right. Giuseppe Di Fraia says, I think Andrew Tate, Red Peel, Manosphere is a backlash reactionary movement because of feminism, women's rights. What is your opinion on feminism and feminism going too far? Well, this is a complex topic. If you look at the history of feminism, it goes back to the 19th century and it, it, it was a legitimate reaction to the status of women in Western society. And feminism originated in the US. Okay, it originated in the US. And if you look at the way women were treated in the US in the 19th century and all, women did not have the right to vote. Women were essentially property of men and so on. So obviously there was a need for some kind of emancipation and some kind of movement to give women the same dignity and human rights as men. So that's where feminism originated. And some of the original pioneers of feminism were also involved in the civil rights movement because the African origin people of the US were treated, you know how horribly they were treated. There were, there were segregation laws, there was racism, institutionalized racism, they did not have the right to vote, they, they did not have the, the right to enter certain buildings and so on and so forth. So there was this movement, concerted movement for both causes. So the, this, this feminist movement originated out of something that was really, really necessary. Okay. Now what happens in the 1950s and 60s and so on onwards is that the feminist movement becomes gets hijacked. It gets hijacked by the uh, by 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 the by the Marxist movement, neo-Marxist movement. So it's not about bringing Marxism into the U.S. There was a Marxist takeover, ideological takeover that happened over time of the U.S. academic system, universities, colleges, all that. If today, if you go to the U.S. universities, whichever it is, they are infested by Socialists and Marxists. And that's why the standards in the US are declining drastically. So the, these Marxists who, who were all emigres from Europe, they systematically over time hijacked the feminist movement also. And they, they subverted it. And then they used it as another tool that was used for breaking society and dividing society. The Marxist framework is not about equality. It's not about uh, emancipation. It's not about dignity of the pro pro proletariat. It's not about smashing the bourgeoisie and, and uh, all that. It's about creating divisions in society. It's a beautiful toolkit. It's a great framework, beautiful in its efficacy, in efficiency and its, its utility. You want to destroy a nation from within, give yourself 50 years. Yeah, it's a long-term thing, 50, maybe 30 years. And then you systematically infiltrate, systematically infiltrate the academia, the bureaucracy, and various other decision-making organisms or organizations in the country. And you replace their, their people with your people. And then you create systematic divisions in the country. So you divide people, 
on the basis of language. You divide people on the basis of religion. You divide people on the basis of skin color. You divide people on the basis of imagined oppression, which happened hundreds of years ago. You divide people on the basis of, of gender. You divide people on the basis of, of sexuality these days. Today, there are like 782 different sexualities or genders or God knows what. So you create further and further and further and further divisions in society. So you, and this is done by, by taking one group of people and telling them you have been oppressed. And then taking another group of people and saying that these are your oppressors. These, they have oppressed you. And then you make them fight. And then you do this over and over again. So, the, so today what you have, feminism has morphed into this sort of thing, which is essentially about victimizing men, blaming men for everything that is wrong with society. I mean, we are the same species. Men and women are part of the same thing. We are not different species. But anyway, I'll not go into the arguments and counter arguments and all that, but that's what it is about. So it's gone too far. It's become a divisive force in society. Feminism obviously was, was it, it, it originated out of a genuine need to emancipate women for the, from the horrors of Western society. And now it's, it's gone the other way around. Now it's about oppressing men and about blaming men for everything and so on. So obviously there's going to be a backlash. When there's a reaction, there's a counter reaction in society and everywhere else. And that's where you have it. That's where you have it. All right, all right, right, right. Okay, once again, the same question. Some media houses claim that France plans to share aircraft engine technology with India. Do you think it will actually happen? I think the talks will go on for rounds and rounds and rounds and, and go into very specific tiny details about which thing can be shared, which cannot be shared, and what can be done, what cannot be done, and so on and so forth. I think it's, you know, it's going to be a long, drawn-out, extended process. And overall, I like the French, but overall, I am not overall very very hopeful about this. So India should not shelve its jet engine development program, keep it going, and if possible, acquire something from the French, and then you do the best of whatever you have. So I am not extremely optimistic about this, but I am not zero in my optimism. So I'm cautiously, cautiously slightly less optimistic, but I'm still optimistic. That's what I would say. All right. <clears throat> Okay, let us um, take some more questions, lots of questions. Um, okay, Rishi Singh says, please do tell us about India's cyber capabilities. Are we working on it behind the curtains or do we not have any hold on it? Listen, if you look at uh, government communications, press releases, all that, there is no mention of India's cyber capabilities. There is no... Uh, Cyber warfare, cyber capabilities of India, etc., are never mentioned anywhere in any press release, in any, any government communication, in the news, anything at all. It's never mentioned anywhere. So I am not privy to any confidential information. Okay, all I see is what's in the public domain. The data that you have access to, that's the data that I have access to. It depends on how well you can analyze the data. So what I can say is that I have no extra information compared to you about India's cyber capabilities. But the fact that we don't talk about it, I think that is a very encouraging thing for me. I think India has reasonably good cyber capabilities now. Now, I think it is opinion. It is not based on facts. It's based on logic and inference. Uh, but it's like uh, it's like a neural network. You can't really explain how you how the neural network came up with this calculation and this output but it did its calculation so it's like that so i believe that india has pretty strong 
cyber capabilities now. But I don't really have any data to back me up when I make this claim. So you can take it with a grain of salt if you like. All right. Uh, where was this? Okay. Comments are coming in really fast. Okay, Dr. Parva256 says, if China becomes superpower, what's going to happen to the South China Sea? China is not going to be a superpower. Let me tell you why. Okay, I don't have uh, the thing on the screen right now. If you compare, see, people think of two nations when the term superpower comes to mind. Indians always think about India as well, but let's be realistic right now. Okay, let's be realistic. If you look at the overall power of the US, whether it is their very basic things like area and population, if we talk about their economic strength, the American economic strength is close to double that of China. Not double, let's say 1.5 times that of China. So they are kind of neck and neck when it comes to economic strength. The US is not leagues ahead of China. It's about 1.5 times that of China. When it comes to military strength, the US is like three times as powerful as China, militarily, right? When it comes to nuclear strength, the US leaves China in the dust, way behind. The US is an immense nuclear arsenal, second only to Russia. China is nowhere near, anywhere near the US in terms of nuclear strength. When it comes to power projection, China can't even begin comparing itself with the US when it comes to power projection. Power projection means the amount of power you can project extraterritorially. The US is leagues ahead of any nearest peer competitor. There's no comparison. So if you take all of this together, and if you take into consideration energy self-sufficiency also, which is very important, then you will see the US is roughly 10 times, or let's say 8 times as powerful as China. China is not even close. It's not even half of the US. It's about one-eighth of the US. Roughly, roughly. Okay? So, China is nowhere close to being anywhere near being a superpower. I'm, I don't know what I'm saying, but you know, you get what I mean. I mean, look at the map and I'll tell you. I mean, it's, it should be obvious when we just take a look at the map. China wants what? China wants Taiwan. Where is Taiwan? Where is Taiwan? Right next to Taiwan. Right next to China. Then why can't China take back Taiwan even though it's in its own backyard? Because the US is too powerful for China even here. Okay? So China is nowhere near being a superpower. And with the kind of demographic decline it is seeing, it's never going to happen. China is never going to be a superpower. And if you, if you were to compare China and the US, I would say that US is about eight times as powerful as China. If you were to compare India and China, <laughs> China is about three and a half times as powerful as India overall. So this is just hard facts. All right. So yeah, so China is not going to be a superpower. That's that's the actual answer. That's the actual answer. It's not going to be a superpower. All the hype, don't, don't believe the hype that media gives you and so-called so-called experts speak about China superpower. No, China is not a superpower. Uh, yeah, the, see, I just answered the question. China isn't half of the US. China is about one-eighth of the US, roughly speaking. 
then india is roughly one third of china so that tells you to be a superpower is going to be a long 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 process india should forget about these wonderful terminologies these wonderful terms superpower vishwaguru focus on the very basics focus on taking one step in front of the other don't look at how high the mountain is just focus on the next step and keep taking the next step and the next step and the next step and don't think too far india is nowhere close to being a superpower china itself is nowhere close to being a superpower nowhere near all right so india isn't going to be a, be a superpower in the, by 2050 no way impossible but india is already a great power india will surpass china by 2050 yeah india will probably surpass china by 2050 india will most likely be number 2 by 2050 it is very much possible so that's the next target we should talk about not about these status symbols like superpower and vishwaguru forget about status we should pursue actual hard power hard power that can be measured in numbers numbers are everything thoughts and emotions and feelings and and status is nothing you should we should pursue hard growth numerical growth numerical figures that's all that we need to look at we have to be realistic all right Uh, i already i already spoke about uh, the texas border so um, ayush says we do you th- do you think that mossad israel knew about the hamas attack but decided to do nothing about it so as to use it an excuse to end hamas once and for all it's kind of a crazy theory well it's it's kind of hard to believe that the, um, the israelis knew nothing about this would, what was going to happen apparently the egyptians had tipped off the the israelis that something big is going to happen and it's going to happen pretty soon and the the israelis have tremendous amounts of surveillance capabilities and electronic surveillance uh, signals surveillance human intelligence and god knows what it's i mean it's hard to believe that they did not know this is going to happen and the reaction time was so slow even after the the thing is set in motion the the border fencing is cut i mean they had sensors there their motion detectors how come they did not react in time these slow moving paragliders come in i mean how did they not react to that on time in time so yeah it looks kind of weird but i don't have any actual answers because uh who knows what really happened and why it happened but yeah what you were saying is not a crazy theory it, it kind of is a very legitimate question that needs to be asked all right um let us see what else we have critical akhil says what is critical thinking how can we start thinking critically Uh, also please explain what's the meaning of first principles thinking a uh, critical thinking means you look see we humans are a combination of uh, logic and emotion there's a logical side to our, our, our thinking thinking process logic and there's an emotional side to our thinking process where everything is clouded by whatever emotion we are currently going through that's why people need motivational speeches when you listen to a motivational speech with white nice epic music and all that you feel all motivated yeah let me go and do this but that's just the emotion after a while after 10 minutes 15 minutes half an hour the emotion will go back to baseline and then what happens then how do you progress when the emotion emotional hit is gone so critical thinking is about setting your emotions aside all right and just thinking calmly and logically logic 
So that is critical thinking. Look at both sides of the coin. When there is an issue, when there is a problem to be solved, you look at it from all angles. How can I best solve the problem? I don't care whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. That's critical thinking. So critical thinking is about thinking logically and rationally and coldly and unemotionally. And using logic and calculation. As far as possible, use mathematical calculations and numbers. That's critical thinking. And if you can't do that, you have to make assumptions, but smart assumptions, probabilistic assumptions, and use hard logic. So in science, in physics, many of the things that we talk about don't have exact answers. What is the probability that Oumuamua was an alien artifact? So if you ask me, was Oumuamua an alien artifact? I would say, I don't know. But if you ask me, what's the probability? Then I could actually give you probabilistic figures based on actual logical calculations based on the properties of the object and so on. So that is critical thinking. If you ask me, do aliens exist? I'll say, what the hell? How do we know? Have we seen any aliens? No, we have not seen. If you ask me, what is the probability that aliens exist or don't exist? Then I can give you actual facts and figures. So it's all about probabilistic thinking when you don't have hard figures and, and logical thinking. That's critical thinking. What is the meaning of first principles thinking? You ask why 78 times. Not 78 times, maybe five times. Okay? That's what you do. There's a question. Why is the sky blue? Then how do we answer the question? Right? So then you ask the question, what is the actual color of the sun? Then you will say it's yellow. But I'll then ask you, then what's the question? What's the color of the sun when you go outside the atmosphere into space? So my point is you go back, you peel back the layer step by step by step until you go back to the very first principles. The first principles in any field is the basics. So when you talk about question of the sky being blue and all, you have to go back to the first principles of physics, which is quantum mechanics in this case, Rayleigh scattering and all that. Forget about that. But when it comes to geopolitics and all, we have to go back to the very basic fundamentals of what is power, what is energy, what is force, what is the natural interest. Break it down to the very basics and then use only those basics to examine the entire world. That is first principles thinking. Not abstract thinking, but complete basic first principles, which cannot be broken down further. That is that is first principles thinking. It's about asking why, why, why. I ask why, you get an answer. Then you ask why is that the answer. Then you go back one layer deeper. And then you get another answer. You, say, you ask why is that the answer. You go back one level deeper. You go back deeper and deeper and deeper until there is no more depth to reach because you've gone back to the very fundamentals, gone down to the very fundamentals. So it's all about fundamentals of any and the basic principles of any field. That is first principles thinking. So that's what it is. All right. I think we have gone past two hours, 11 minutes. So I think that should be the end of today's session. Wonderful session. Thank you so much for all the questions. Once again, uh, let me remind you, I have launched the geopolitics course and uh, Yes, I have launched the geopolitics course. The link is in the chat. Let me once again put it up. Here we have it. So it's it's called geopolitics from first principles. I get this question all the time. Is there any book or any course that you can refer to to learn geopolitics? So this is it. There is no book that's available that I know of that teaches you geopolitics 
the fundamentals of geopolitics but this course is going to do exactly that it's going to break it down to the basics and it's going to give you the ability to actually calculate the power of a nation compare nations and compare the strengths and weaknesses precisely of nations it's going to put you in the top 5% of geopolitical analysts if you take this course so if you are serious about learning geopolitics go ahead and take this course it's going to launch on the 1st of february but it's available for pre ordering right now if you order before the 1st of february you will get a discount so if you are interested please go ahead and purchase the course and thank you so much for watching i really appreciate all the questions and we're going to do a lot more live streams this year ask abhijit and we're going to have a lot more other content as well on this channel this year so thank you so much i wish you all a good day great day good night wherever you are and i'll see you very soon in the next video in the next live stream thank you so much and i'll see you next time bye